0: Near the front of your Bible, you can find it quite easily. If you want to use a chairback Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 128. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, what we are doing over the course of these fall months, and perhaps stretching into the very early part of next year, is after having studied our morning services, all of Genesis and all of Exodus, what we wanted to do as the morning service through Acts continues, is in the evening complement that New Testament study... Uh, by thinking about uh, these relatively famous stories, certainly well-known stories in the Old Testament that only help us understand how God continued his work throughout uh, the acts of redemptive history in the Old Testament, but also particularly these stories that give us something of the shadow that belongs to Jesus Christ. And what we want to look at together tonight is the first 13 verses of Numbers chapter 20. So last week we looked at chapter 13 and 14. We've advanced the story now forward four decades. Forty years have elapsed between where we left off last week and where we find ourselves tonight. And let me read these 13 verses for us and then pray briefly and we'll begin together. So listen as God does speak to you. Once again, through his wonderful word. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both us and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain, figs, vines, or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels." Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And these are the waters of Meribah. For the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. And thus, Father, reading of God's word, let's pray once again together. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word. We who people are often contending with your truth and even quarreling in our sin Forgetting your provision and your faithfulness to your promise. And so we ask that even by this word this evening, that you would speak to us clearly by your word and its application, by the Spirit within our hearts, that we would know what it means to follow you fully, that we would have faith, that we wouldn't be a people full of unbelief and doubt, but we would know that the living waters of everlasting life are promised to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was with a missionary friend one time and we were having lunch and he suddenly had received notice that a close friend of his had unexpectedly resigned from pastoral ministry. And this was a man who had increasingly had a platform growing in his local community. He was a man that was on Local radio stations; his sermons were broadcast throughout the week. He had published, I think, just his second book only a few months before. And uh, by any observant person of the scene of evangelicalism at the time, this pastor seemed to be, you know, on a clear trajectory to a place of prominence and a platform of influence in the broader English-speaking world. But then the news broke that he had resigned. Because disqualifying sin had come to light, and he left the gospel ministry altogether. And as my missionary friend and I were talking about this brother, he told me, those of us who were familiar with this pastor and his local environment, well, Jordan, none of us are surprised that this man disqualified himself in this way. And I tell you that because uh, what we come tonight, among the other things that we're going to see, is Moses' disqualification for seeing, feeling, experiencing the promised land. And whereas this brother many years ago disqualified himself in gospel ministry and everyone who knew him well expected it, nobody would have expected Moses would not see the promised land. Because if you hold your finger in Numbers chapter 20, if you flip back to just Numbers chapter 12, you'll see Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, were opposing Moses in that moment, primarily because of his marriage to a Cushite woman. And the Lord, when he rose up in defense of Moses, said this in verse 7 and 8 of Numbers chapter 12. He said... Moses is a faithful servant in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Uh, it's, it's a way, children, of the Lord saying to Miriam and Aaron, there is nobody on earth like my servant Moses. And at the end of Moses' life, at the end of Deuteronomy, after he's been buried in the ground, there's a summary statement in a similar way that's mentioned about Moses' character. As Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 says, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses would have been the last person you would expect to be disqualified from seeing the promised land. Yet that's precisely what happens in our text tonight. And so where we left off last week in this survey of sorts of the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 11, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we saw these spies, 12 spies, they were sent out into the promised land to investigate what God was giving to his people. And we saw that 10 of those spies came back and they gave this majority report that said the land is wonderful. But kids, you might remember they said, there are giants in it. That we are like grasshoppers to these men. There's no way we can take the land. But two of the spies said, no, we can take it. Let us with courage and faith go into the promised land. But the people of Israel continued to rebel in their fear and faithlessness. And so what God decreed in chapter 14 of Numbers was that the entire older generation of Israel was going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years that all of them were going to die out before seeing the promised land. And what happens then in Numbers between chapter 15 and chapter 19 is four decades elapse in Israel's life. And it receives only the tiniest of mentions, actually the events that ensue over those 40 years. It's almost as though this first generation becomes the forgotten generation as they stood on the precipice of the promised land, but due to their lack of faith, they didn't enter into That promised rest. And so we pick up the story tonight in chapter 20, 40 years on, and we see yet again that faithlessness is preventing God's people from entering the promised rest. And of particular notice to us is the lack of faith, and even a leader like Moses. And showing us along the way these 13 verses the extent of sin in the life of God's people because you see again that Israel falls into a sinful pattern that defined their very existence in the wilderness and even in the subsequent centuries. You see even how sin in God's people can stretch to the greatest of leaders. It's sin that's going to receive God's judgment of fiery serpents as we take up chapter 21, Lord willing, next week. And so our theme tonight is the story of a rock. I want to fix your attention by the end on this rock there in the wilderness. And what we want to notice along the way are simply four things that we're going to mark off in our study of these 13 verses. But kids, from the outset, recognize that this is a text that's telling us that God's people have a tendency, don't they, don't you, and don't we, to treat sin lightly as it's not. A big deal to fall into unbelief as faithlessness is not nearly as terrible as a sin as whatever other ones we might come up with and surely from the nation of Israel even on to today one of the greatest perpetual problems that belongs to God's people is that we treat sin lightly and we think God's discipline of our sin often far too harsh. Well, let's think about those things as we notice, first of all, in our four things we're going to see tonight, Israel's disobedience. And before the disobedience happens, notice we get a declaration at the end of verse 1 about Miriam's death. As it simply says, and Miriam died there and was buried there. That's just a few passing words, isn't it, about the death of Moses' sister, Miriam, who we know from Exodus chapter 15 and even Numbers 12, that she had something of a significant a role in the life there of Israel, but she seems to just vanish from the story, doesn't she, in the space of a few phrases. She died there, and she was buried there." It should be even a verse that reminds us that even uh, the mighty servants of the Lord, significant servants of the Lord, will always pass into being forgotten that you might be remembered for a short amount of time, but if the Lord tarries, years go by, decades go by, centuries go by, and even people who were quite influential in their time, they just fade into memory. And that's why, students, it's always good to remember that even though your soul's desire might be to be famous in the world, what is the greatest desire you can have is just to be faithful as God's child in the world. For even someone like Miriam just passes away And even fades from memory. The problem though, notice, presents itself in verse 2. Now there was no problem, I'm sorry, there was no water for the congregation. Which if your children are anything like my own, a lack of water is a terrible thing. I mean, seemingly every night our youngest children will go to bed. And they are instructed right before they go to bed, you need to have some water. You may not come out and tell me in a few minutes that you're thirsty. Because this is your last drink of the day. And don't they seem to always go through these periods where even when you tell them that, 20 minutes later, they summon themselves from the room as if they are dying of thirst. (laughs) What do you need? Mom or dad says, well, I'm thirsty. Or it happens a lot of times with our other kids who are older on Sunday evenings. After the doors close, we hang out outside for quite a while. And in the summer months, it's quite warm and they sweat quite a lot. So they get in the car and the first thing they say, I'm dying of thirst as what they're convinced of. And here is the nation of Israel in the midst of a desert wilderness, and they have a genuine problem of having no water. It's millions of people. Uh, The text even emphasizes the cattle. So you can say millions of people and millions of cattle combined together. Uh, There's no water for them at all. And this is what's happening with the nation of Israel at this time. You can compare this story to something that happens quite similarly in Exodus chapter 17. And what bookends this faithlessness generation in the wilderness is two tests of thirst that follow not in exactly the same way, but quite a similar way. So the nation of Israel's response to the water problem is let's call a congregational meeting and let's quarrel with our leaders. And you see what they say in verse 3. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now you need to know something about the Intervening years, since we left off last week in Numbers, what they're referring to here. Uh, You could flip back to it later on tonight, or perhaps tomorrow morning in your devotional time, and just read Numbers chapter 16. You'll see something there that's famously referred to as Korah's Rebellion. It was this rebellion that was so sinful that God even opened up the earth to swallow the rebels. And then a plague broke out against God's people. And 14,700 of them died in the plague, God's judgment upon their sin. And what the people of Israel are saying, we wish we would have been swallowed up by the earth because of our waywardness, rather than die here in the wilderness because of our lack of water. You'll notice verse 5, they even say, and why have you made us to come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. And there's profound irony even in that statement in verse 5, because they say, we want figs. We want pomegranates. And the students, do you remember what the spies came carrying back from the promised land some 40 years before? Figs and pomegranates. But the people had said, we're too scared to go get them, even though God had promised us this land. And so what here is this kind of repeated sinful pattern, isn't it, within the nation of Israel, which is a sinful pattern of grumbling and quarreling, you might even say. Their spirituality was very much that of the rear view. They're always looking into the past. They were espousing revisionist versions of their past history, saying that, well, it actually was much better than it really was. They look back with sentimentality, thinking of the golden age of what it once used to be, forgetting that In previous decades, what had gone done in miraculous ways, time and time again, provided for them in their need. Yet here they are in the present saying, well, we should go back to where it used to be better because we're not even concerned about God providing for our future. He clearly can't provide for us in the present. So that's Israel's disobedience. Now look at the Lord's direction in verse 6 through 9 because Moses and Aaron, they respond well. There's a need. They fall on their faces. You notice in verse 6, they're praying before the Lord. It's always a good thing, isn't it? When trouble arises, when division comes, that the response isn't one that's immediately hasty. That's, Lord, we need your help. Lord, we need your direction. And the glory of the Lord, you'll see there in verse 6 at the end, appeared to them, verse 7 and 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, And tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them. And give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. So kids, it's very simple. The Lord's direction. Take the staff and speak to the rock. It's just that easy. Moses, take the staff and speak to the rock. And miraculous gush will come forth from that stone. That all the people may drink and all their cattle may drink. But I trust that you know how God's people often complicate very simple commands. Because, we'll notice now Moses' disqualification in the third place. He starts, well enough, you see, verse 9, he took the staff as the Lord said. But then he goes wrong. Notice verse 10, they gathered the assembly together before the rock. And Moses said to them, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, students, you want to ask at this point, wait, well, the Lord didn't say, did he? Speak to the people. He never said to do that. Take the staff and speak to the rock, is what the Lord said. Not take the staff, speak to the people, and then speak to the rock. But perhaps you might be able to sympathize with Moses and his emotions in this moment. He just laid his sister into the ground. He's dealing yet again with a bitter recalcitrant people. And even as Psalm 106 says, that Israel in their spirit caused his spirit to become bitter, Moses' spirit to become bitter, so that he spoke rash words from his mouth. And we always need to remember that hastiness never brings blessedness, especially, especially hastiness that seems to be fueled by bitterness. That's what Psalm 106 is saying. It's almost that Moses in this moment is bitter over these people that the Lord has entrusted to him. And so you'll see what he takes upon his own Prerogative, he says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now kids, who is supposed to provide the water from the rock? That's supposed to be God. But here's Moses saying, well, do you want us to give you what you so desperately desire? Well, he eventually strikes the rock. Notice verse 11, lifts up his hand. He struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. And I've always wondered. You know what Moses thought. As the people of Israel. And their livestock there. Were, were drinking at this miraculous provision of water. As Moses looking over at Aaron. And saying finally. They're going to calm down. Now that they have water. Or is there's this kind of swelling up sense of pride. Within their own power. That he can take the staff. And tap the rock twice. And out comes as it were. This ocean. Of provision or whatever it was we know that God was not pleased because Moses's disqualification is found really in this final part of the passage which is God's discipline. I was recently talking with one of my children about his soccer team and their need for increased fitness and so I thought Through all of these stories of my soccer playing career of coaches telling us players we need increased fitness and one of them stood out in a surprising way. We had been playing in a game and it went well enough, we thought, but then after the game and the post-game speech, the manager said, hey, don't bring your boots to training on Monday. I bring your running shoes and that's when you knew okay something was wrong with what we had just done there on the field and we showed up to the training pitch and it's a 90 minute session and we're there in our our running boots there's no balls there's no cones anywhere and he, he set a pace for us and we had to run that pace around the soccer field for the 90 minutes of training. Uh, Because what he said was, you know, our performance in the previous game was entirely unacceptable. And as we were running around the field, and uh, the goalkeepers, as the goalkeepers always do, you know, the keepers were struggling to keep the pace, and then under everyone's breath seemed to be these phrases of, this just isn't fair, or some type of sentiment that is quite similar. And I think many Christians have come to the Lord's discipline in verse 12, and wondered... That seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? I mean, all Moses did was strike the rock. That's actually what he was supposed to do in Exodus 17, and he followed the Lord's word there. But here he's struck the rock, and now look at the discipline, verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses, you're going to get to see it from afar but you're not going to get to experience it with your feet and with your hands because you did not believe in my ability to provide in the miraculous provision of water. So if you come to a passage like this and you wonder, is this discipline a wee bit unfair? Is it a wee bit too strong and harsh? Uh, Maybe it's for us to uh, meditate and examine our own hearts to think perhaps it's our view of sin that is too light. For this is thoroughly appropriate because it's what was reminding us here is that the entirety of the generation that came out, this older generation that came out of Egypt, none of them are going to see the promised land. Just like Israel fell short in their faith. Here's Moses falling short. You'll notice again verse 12, because he did not believe in me to uphold me as holy. God was the one that was to get the glory. God was the one that was to get the majesty. God was the one who was to be upheld as holy in the miraculous provision of water. And Moses took the glory that belonged to God alone. His lack of belief seemed that he needed to do something to the rock in order to make the water come out. But the Lord's discipline was now, you will not enter into the promised land, but God guarantees that he will be upheld as holy. Notice verse 13. These are the waters of Meribah. But the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. Lord, Meribah just means contending or, or quarreling. And through them, he showed himself holy. Showed himself holy in his discipline of his servant. Even his beloved servant, Moses. This is a story about a rock. Years ago, Emily and I were on a mountain trip up somewhere in the mountains. And we were on this hike one day, and as we were out on the trail, Emily made some sort of comment that was perhaps like one you would have made before on such a hike. You know, it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, to grab one of these rocks and bring it home and you know, put it in the front flower bed. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And so somewhere in one of our family photo albums, there is this picture of me coming down a mountain with a rather large-sized boulder heaped over my shoulder because I thought if we're going to get a rock, you know, we need to get a big one in order that we can see it clearly and remember where it came from. And in ways that you may not have ever realized before, if you're familiar with this story, The story about a rock is very much a large rock in redemptive history for God's people to remember. And I want you to see the two ways, according to God's word, that we're meant to remember what happened there at the waters of Meribah. First of all, it's a rock of warning. Uh, We we quoted even from the passage in Hebrews last week in a similar way from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Uh, But this rock, according to Psalm 95, as it's quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4, becomes a warning. Where the Lord says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at the waters of Meribah. God is there speaking to his people about his gracious provision, his kind grace in bringing what you so desperately need. And do not harden your heart as those people did. This is a word of warning. It's a rock of warning. But in ways not everyone realizes it's also a rock of witness. To God's people for when the Apostle Paul in 1st Corinthians chapter 10 turns his attention to the nation of Israel and how it is in some ways a warning to us that we not fall into its idolatry he sneaks in a statement regarding a rock and he simply says this that all of Israel drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the same spiritual rock which is referring to our passage here tonight I drank from the rock, and that rock was Jesus Christ. And it's a way that maybe you don't always read the scriptures to see the Savior in this way, but uh, what we find with this rock there at the waters of Meribah, this is a rock that was God's gracious provision to His people in their wilderness wanderings. And is not Jesus Christ God's constant, gracious provision to His people? in the midst of their new covenant wilderness wanderings. Uh, He's told us, hasn't he, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age that the nation of Israel was doubting. They were believing whether or not God could provide for them in the midst of their need. And God is saying, I'm there with you always. How often have you maybe wondered, can God provide for me in the midst of my desperate need when he's given you the assurance that everything that you need will be provided for according to his promise in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ to himself said, what flows from him but living water. That brings eternal life, not just temporal provision. but brings eternal mercy and a provision of forgiveness and grace at the Father's right hand forever. So the story about a rock is genuinely, it's a story about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you know us in your son Jesus Christ and you love us enough that we who even have fallen short might receive the blessings and benefits that you provide through your son Jesus Christ in the same way that the nation of Israel of old, though they didn't deserve it, still receive the gracious provision from that rock. So provide for us out of your promise in your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand